Please take out your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 42. They can be found on page 886, and get excited, also page 887. Uh, nine weeks in, and we are finally on page 2. But do not worry, uh, this will, the pace will pick up after this foundational first chapter. A few weeks ago, we opened our time with a question. What do you love to look at? Or where are you looking? We were looking at verse 29 in John's wit- John the Witness's climactic call, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look, look at the one who takes away the sin which is death. Therefore, look and live. Life is found as we look at the Lamb. And then, as we saw last week, it is the Spirit that enables and facilitates that look. It is the Spirit that reveals the Savior. It is the Spirit that relates us and unites us to the Savior. It is the Spirit that renews hearts and opens eyes. So look and live. Where are you looking? I hope this time we just spent learning about Kevin and his ministry was kind of a challenging kind of reminder. Man, where, where am I looking? Our text this morning contains, in verse 36, the same call from John the Witness, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it is followed up by a question, a question from Jesus himself. And note this, these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in John's gospel. We've talked on a number of occasions about the significance of the first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Consider all that's packed into those few short words. Kingdom, which is a pretty good summary of the whole book of Matthew. Gospel, which is a pretty good summary of the whole book of the Bible. Repent and believe. That's a pretty good summary of how we are to respond to the gospel and receive admission into the kingdom. First words matter. Well, here's the question for your consideration this morning, straight from the lips of Jesus. What are you seeking? These first words of Jesus are the first question that anyone who would come to Jesus must answer. What are you seeking? What are you after? What do you hope to get out of this, Um, out of Jesus? Or a question I encourage you to ask yourself occasionally, church, why are you here? Like today, right now, why did you get up this morning and come to church? What are you seeking? If you are a Christian, then what you are, or at least should ultimately be seeking, is Jesus Christ himself. For as we're going to see, that is what a disciple is and does. And that is what the passage before us this morning is about, as we again come to another first in this gospel. John the author's first use of the word disciple, as he records two of the disciples of John the witness, leaving John to follow and become disciples of Jesus. So notice the progression from the previous passage to the current passage. John witnesses, he proclaims Jesus Christ as the Savior of sin. He says, look and live. But what will be the result of this look of life? And again, how can you tell if you have looked and lived? Well, the the result will be discipleship. John preaches Jesus. People become disciples of Jesus. That's the simple, that text to this text. Well, what is that? What is a a disciple? What What does a disciple look like? What does a disciple of Jesus do? Let's see from our text this morning. Keep that question in mind. What are you seeking? Jesus is the only answer to that question that gives life. Well, how can you tell if you are seeking Jesus? Three points this morning. 
We're going to start with the imperatives and end with the glorious indicatives. I want us to see that disciples, number one, quite simply, follow Jesus. That is, by definition, what a disciple is. Disciples follow Jesus. But then we're going to see that including that following Jesus, importantly, number two, we often stop with number one. Number two, we're going to see that disciples bring others to Jesus. And we can make these imperatives, church, follow, witness. That's what it means to be a disciple. But I don't want us to miss the very important final verse where we're going to see the foundation and the fuel of these commands. Number three, do these things for, here's the reason, for you have already been called, named, and claimed by Jesus, which is what we're going to see Jesus do for Peter at the end of our passage. So let's read it first before we begin to walk through it. I will be reading in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. I want you to pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Bow with me and let's begin first with a word of prayer. Father, you have already been very gracious to us this morning. Father, it has been a good Sunday. We thank you for the gift of congregational worship. We thank you for the gift of uniting our hearts in praise and getting to sing and proclaim the wonderful truths of of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the privilege of getting to have Kevin here with us and to hear what you are doing through the Kunis um, in Indonesia. Father, we would like to be a small part of of what you are doing um, with them. Father, thank you for even the example and the encouragement of, of what it means in part to, to look like a disciple. Father, we pray that you would use um, his testimony, and we pray that you would use especially your word, Father, to show us Christ and to show us his beauty and his glory and to show us what it means to follow one who is so good and so gracious and kind uh, to us. Father, please now work in our hearts. Please help uh, the preaching of your word, and please help the hearing of your word. And we ask and we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, church, follow Jesus. Pretty simple. Christians, follow Christ. That is simply what it means to be a disciple. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, remember this makes day three. It seems that John, the author, has structured the beginning of Jesus' ministry around the creation week of Genesis 1. Just as the creation began with seven days, so now new creation begins with the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. This is day three, and this is the day of transition as we shift now from John the witness to Jesus the Savior. And this has been the express purpose of John from the beginning. We have seen John asked, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Are you the Christ? And we have seen him answer, no, 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 I am not the Christ. Not me, but him. John directs the attention. He directs the look away from self to the Savior. Don't look at me. Look at him. 
And now John puts his money where his mouth is. He demonstrates that he is a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It is fairly easy to say, not me, but him. And I know this from personal experience, that it's easy to say, not me, but him, but to say it in a way that means the exact opposite, right? It's possible to say, not me, but him, and actually mean, me, me, me. In our circles, it's always a temptation to preach the gospel, to proclaim Christ, but to do so for the purpose of drawing attention to self and magnifying self and feeling better about self. And motive always matters. It seems that John does not have this problem. We are leaving John the witness now, but we will see him one last time in chapter 3 where some of his other disciples seem to be having a hard time with Jesus's increasing popularity and John's decreasing popularity. But John doesn't seem to be having this problem. He famously and humbly says in 3:30, "He must increase, but I must decrease." And he acts that out in our passage as we see him with two of his disciples and he directs them away from himself specifically to Jesus. John's desire is not to make disciples of himself, but to make disciples of Jesus. And so verse 36, as Jesus walks by, John again says, behold, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. It's a pretty helpful verse. Right there, because that's what disciples do. Disciples, by definition, follow. And here, they very literally walk after Jesus. They literally follow him. But it seems that John the author is setting the stage and indicating more, as this word follow will come in the gospel to increasingly take on deeper levels of meaning. Disciples, in the Greek, mathetes, follow, um, akalutheo in the Greek. I love the words. I think these are helpful words. A disciple is a mathetes. You hear the word at the beginning of that? Math, math, mathetes. That's where our word math comes from, from this family of words. I've seen Peter working on some of his so-called math in the fellowship hall, and it means nothing to me. I don't understand it at all. Some of it is literally Greek to me, and I read some Greek. It's, It's hard. Which makes this an appropriate word for math, because the root in the Greek originally meant something like the the mental effort needed to think something through. Or I like it put like this, it's thought accompanied by effort. Thought accompanied by effort. That's a good definition for math. And so then this word, mathetes, came to simply mean a student or a learner. A disciple is simply one who intentionally learns from another through association, observation, instruction, and so on. This is a pretty common practice at the time of Jesus. Look at verse 38. They followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, and here's our question, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, John helps us, he tells us, which means teacher, where are you staying? So there's rabbi. Literally, it means my great one, and it came to be a title for a teacher. And it was common back then for rabbis to have disciples. And they didn't necessarily go sit in a classroom and and teach them sitting around in chairs. No, disciples would literally follow and walk behind their rabbi as they lived with him and observed him and learned from him. And so this then is a helpful picture for us as we seek to better understand what it means to be a Christian. It means to follow Jesus. It's that simple. 
To be a Christian, if you took our two texts, is 29 through 34. It's to behold the Lamb of God. It's to see the Savior. It's to live by the application of the work of the Savior by the Spirit. And then, verses 35 through 42, it is to follow him. See him. Follow him. But again, motive matters. And Jesus wants you to be clear on what you are after. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? What are you hoping to get out of this? Why do you claim to follow Jesus? What do you hope to get from Jesus? And we all need to honestly answer that question for ourselves because we are great at deceiving others and great at deceiving ourselves. And there are all kinds of subtle ways out there in which we can seem to be seeking Jesus, but actually really be seeking self and using Jesus simply as the means uh, to serve self. And so many out there, some subtly and some less so, will, you know, preach Christ as a means to prosperity, health, wealth, and happiness. We've talked about this enough, right? Come to Jesus and get what you want. Again, not a gospel at all, a, a false gospel. God never promises us earthly prosperity. In fact, he seems to generally promise the exact opposite. Um, maybe some of you have had a hard life. You've got problems. Hey, maybe Jesus can help me with my problems and make my life easier. Well, Maybe not, as Jesus calls all who would follow him to take up their cross and die to self, as he tells us that in this life we will have tribulation. We follow a suffering Savior. We Americans, we Westerners need to remind ourselves that we follow a suffering Savior who died. What do we expect following the man of sorrows to be like? Some maybe seek Jesus to feel better about themselves. Some seek Jesus to prop up their own kind of social justice calls. And on and on and on we could go. The point is, it is possible to appear to follow and to even think that you are following Jesus when you are actually seeking something else entirely. Right? A Christian is one whose eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to their spiritual condition. They are painfully aware of their wickedness and their wretchedness. It has to start there, right? If you have not had a very real encounter with your own sinfulness, um, then maybe we've got a problem. Christians have seen their sin. They have despaired over their ability to do anything about that sin. But then by the grace of God, they've seen the Lamb. They've seen the Savior as the only solution to that sin. And so they then throw themselves at his feet to be forgiven of that sin that is death. That sin that has separated us from God because they desire nothing else but God himself. So they have seen, they've been captured, and then they follow. A Christian seeks Christ. It's that simple. And that's what we see these two disciples doing. Back to verse 38 again. Jesus has asked them this question that he asks us all. Answer this question this morning. Um, what? And then he responds to their, then, sorry, the verse after that says, Rabbi, they respond to his question, where are you staying? That's how they answer the come, the what are you seeking question. And it's kind of a weird response. Why is that what they ask? They've just heard, they've understood to some degree that this is the Lamb of God. Right? This is the solution to their sin. This is the one they've been looking for and waiting for. And yet they ask, hey, where, where are you staying? Why? Well, it's simple. It's because they want to be with him. Right? It's, it's that simple. They want to be alone with Jesus for a long time, just with him. And this then is also what a disciple is and does. A disciple is one who desires and delights to be 
with Jesus. Following Jesus includes simply being with Jesus. And it seems, once again, we've talked about how good of an author John the author is. I think he's playing with words. We know that John loves double entendres. He loves deeper meanings. And so in the text there where you see the disciples ask, where are you staying? They use a word there that is going to be very, very important in this gospel. A minnow, M, not the fish, M-E-N-O. And I thought, I was excited, I thought we had another first here, but then I looked it up and, and we don't. We've already seen this word actually twice. Look up at verses 32 and 33. How is John the witness going to recognize the Messiah? Well, in verse 33, it says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. That's the same word. Meno, M-E-N-O. It's remain there. It's stay in our text. But then as we go along and as we progress in the book, this word is most often going to be translated as abide. Abide is this word. So many think that John is kind of hinting and building and giving symbolic weight to what it looks at first like a simple question of of lodging. But maybe there's something more. Because look at verse 39. What wonderful words we have here. What a wonderful invitation from the creator and savior of the world. He says to them, come. I love the invitations from Jesus. Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. You see, he uses that same word three times. There's the word. They saw where he was staying. They stayed. Disciples, stay with Jesus. Following Jesus includes abiding with and in Jesus. Looking forward, a couple other of the significant uses of this word. There's more than we could look at. Look at 656, if you want to look there. Just a few pages. 656, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Same word. Earlier in that chapter, they're all confused. What's this guy talking about? Eating flesh and drinking blood? Well, Jesus makes it clear that he's talking about faith. He's talking about believing in him. If you believe in Jesus, you will abide in him and he in you. Look over at chapter 8, verse 31. I like this one a lot. Chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Disciples abide. And there's a specific kind of qualification there we'll come back to in a moment. And then look over at chapter 15. The wonderful chapter 15. Verse 4, 15 verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, here you go, Jim and Juliet, here is your favorite, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the disciples abided, is that the past tense, is abode a word? The disciples stayed with Jesus that whole day. They were with him. This is what it means to be a disciple. They talked with him, they listened to him, they were in his presence. And it is the same for any who would claim to be a Christian today. Christians are, by definition, disciples of Jesus. And so we see that disciples follow Jesus. We see that that includes being taught by Jesus, listening to him, looking to him, liking him, and loving him, and then loving to become like him. But 
wait a second, right? They, they could go and sit in his tent. They could physically sit in the physical presence of Jesus. They could very literally abide with him. And church, so can we. Don't miss the wonderful word that we read in 831. If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. Later on in the chapter 15 that we looked at, Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, If you abide in me, and he explains, and my words abide in you, Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, my words, you will abide in my love. You see, throughout the book, Jesus directly connects abiding in him with his words. His words, which his disciples will cry out. These are the words of eternal life. His words, which are living and active. His words, which are found here, church, right, in in the word of God. These are no mere words. As we looked a little bit last week, this is not just a book. There is no word-spirit divide. These are the words spoken and inspired by God himself. The words that are able to make you wise for salvation, breathed out by God and profitable. The words, as we'll see next week, which reveal to you the Christ. The words, which we'll see in a moment, are the foundation upon which the Christian and the church are built upon. The words that the Spirit takes and communicates to us. Abide in me. As the two disciples abide with Jesus, sitting in his presence, listening to his words, so do we abide with Jesus, sitting in his presence, as we listen to these words. These words that reveal to us the word, capital W. And so, as we just sang, and how firm a foundation, the word is foundational. To all disciples. I love how Jesus concludes his masterful teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Listen to verses 24 through 27 of Matthew 7. We just basically sang this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So uh, quite simply, a house without, without a foundation will fall. You, without a foundation, will fall. Jesus tells us very clearly that the foundation is his Words, right? The word is foundational for all disciples. Disciples follow. The word reveals to us the master we follow. Disciples are taught. The word teaches us of the Lord of life. Disciples abide. And then this word actually mediates to us the presence of God himself. And so again, going back to the beginning in Jesus' question, ask yourself, what are you seeking? Ask yourself, is there any way in which you can truly say that you are following Jesus? Are you being taught by him through his word? Are you abiding with him through his word and through his people? Do you have anything to do with this word through which he does all of those things? I believe it's pretty simple. God works, uh, we know that God providentially works in all things, right? He is sovereign over all of it. But I think God specifically works through his word and through his people. Through his word and through his people, surrounded by and built on and on his word. So, are you engaging with the means through which God has told us in his word that he 
works. It's quite simple. that You cannot be a disciple if you are merely believing some things about Jesus and occasionally coming to church. A disciple is one who is consumed by Christ. A disciple is one who is kind of caught up in Christ, loving the Lord, living for the Lord, because we've seen who he is. We've seen who we are. We've seen our sin. We've seen then his beauty and his glory. And then we've seen what this all-beautiful and all-glorious one has done to save us from that sin in his living and in his dying. Do you desire and delight in Jesus in any way? Yes, do you believe in Jesus? Faith is everything. Okay, what does that mean? Are you following Jesus? Okay, yes, what does that mean? Do you delight in Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord who gave his life so that you could live? That's what disciples do. Disciples love Jesus, and so disciples follow Jesus. Point number two, though, let's keep moving, because as we're going to see, disciples bring others to Jesus. It's always a temptation to stop at point one. It's always a temptation to focus only on our personal relationship with Jesus. But what we see next is that a true relationship with Jesus always results in a desire for others to have a relationship with Jesus. To truly follow the one who came to seek and save the lost will result in some sort of desire to bring others to the only one who can seek and save the lost. Go back to the text. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Pause for a second. Notice something first. We were introduced to these two disciples up in verse 35. Now, one of those disciples is named Andrew. In our text and in the following text, John the Witness is named Jesus, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. Everyone is named, except for this one individual that is not named. The second disciple in our text. Who is he? Well, we cannot say definitively, but most assume that the fact that everyone is named in this text except for this one disciple, plus some of the details of the text, right? He says it was about the 10th hour, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, that kind of has the ring of an eyewitness detail. Well, all these facts together seem to imply that this unnamed disciple is John himself. Not John the witness, but John the author. Remember, John the author of this gospel never names himself in this gospel. This is most likely John who comes with Andrew to follow Jesus. And just as John the witness has no problem decreasing so that Jesus can increase, no problem sending disciples away from self to the Savior, no problem directing all the attention to Jesus, so John the author has no problem decreasing so that Jesus can increase. No problem directing all the attention to Jesus. Doesn't even name himself. But then he also draws the attention to this other disciple, Andrew. Again, it's a hard, but it's a helpful truth. Humility is hard. Truly being a behind-the-scenes person is hard. Truly desiring uh, no attention, no glory, and no credit is very rare. But here we see it in John the author, and we actually see it in Andrew as well. Look at Andrew. Oh, poor Andrew. Look at how Andrew is introduced. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Man, This one resonates with me. Uh, I preached a sermon on Andrew a long time ago at North Shore. I didn't go back and look at it because it was probably pretty bad. Um, But I remember that in that sermon I made a joke about very much understanding Andrew. I have often been Matt, Josh's brother. 
don't hear this as any sort of complaint about my brother. Some of you have met him. Uh, I have a wonderful big brother that I am very thankful for, and he is very, very good to me and to my family. Um, I've gotten over most of my little brother syndrome, I think, um, but it could be hard to grow up in his shadow. Uh, he was four years older than me, and he is my superior in every way, bigger. Uh, my brother is a beast. I wish he could arm wrestle Kevin right now. I want to see which of them would win that fight. He looks like Kevin. Uh, we are built differently, my brother and I. Don't mess with him. He's better looking. He's more athletic. He's more confident. He's more outgoing. He's more successful. Everything. Everyone always knew and loved Josh. I've confessed before. It took me a couple years to confess this, but I confessed before that I sang in an a cappella group in college. Um, I know, I know. Super cool, right? Um, no, super lame. It seemed cool at the time. But my brother was actually in the group first. And as he was going out four years ahead of me, I was coming in. And so that first year, they printed T-shirts for everyone in the group. And on the T-shirts, on the back, they put everyone's nickname. You know what the back of my shirt said? It said, Josh. I mean, because that's what everyone called me. That was my nickname, because everyone called me Josh. Every time we sang, I had to sing with my brother's name on my back. Um, because I was so identified with and overshadowed by him. Yeah, but I actually didn't mind. I, I loved it because I've always loved and looked up to my big brother. He, but he very much was and is the big brother. Right? He, is, he is Josh. And here we are introduced to Simon Peter for the first time. And Andrew, who is his brother. Yeah, I, I identify a bit with Andrew. He comes onto the scene first, but the limelight quickly and almost immediately shifts to Peter. Peter will be front and center in this story, and we will see a lot of Peter, and we will not see so much of Andrew. In fact, we see Andrew three specific times, including today, and many people have recognized this and pointed this out. I'm not the first. Look at verse 41. Here he is. He, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Verse 42, here's our point. He brought him to Jesus. Next time we see Andrew is in chapter 6, uh, verse 8, at the feeding of the 5,000. How are we going to feed this crowd? The disciples are wondering. And then verse 8 says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, man, again, uh, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so again, it seems that what we see Andrew doing is bringing someone to Jesus. He takes the boy and he brings the boy to Jesus. And we see Andrew for only the third and final time in chapter 12. Some Greeks show up in Jerusalem. They come to Philip and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love that. Do you wish to see Jesus? Verse 22 of chapter 12 tells us Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And so again, it seems to be that Andrew is, is, is bringing people to Jesus. And that's it. That's the end. That's, that's all we get on Andrew. But what a wonderful few words. Yes, as we'll see in a second, Peter will be the rock. Yes, Peter will be front and center. But what could be more honorable and more valuable than to be known as the one who brings people to Jesus? The Jesus who is light and life, the Jesus apart from whom there is only darkness and death. A human soul is of inestimable value. And we know that people without Christ go to hell. The Bible is very clear on that point. Why would we not then make it our business to do everything we can to make sure that everyone around us hears of the Christ who is the only one that can save them from hell? 
I love the famous Spurgeon quote. I wish I could hear it in his accent. Lost, lost, lost. Better a whole world on fire than a soul lost. Ah, I don't think we believe that. I don't think many of us believe that in the church today. Better a whole world on fire than a single soul lost. Better every star quenched and the skies a wreck than a single soul to be lost. You see, disciples of Jesus believe that life is found only in Jesus. And so they then act on that truth and they bring others to Jesus. The last command that Jesus gives to his church, to his disciples, is to go and make disciples. Again, this is not an optional add-on. This is not something reserved for the super-Christians or the, or the Coonies or the, the pastors. Uh, this is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus bring others to Jesus. And so in answering the question, what are you seeking? In answering the question, are you seeking Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Well, you must then ask yourself the question, do you have any interest in and are you playing any role in bringing others to Jesus? Again, you don't have to be Peter the Apostle. Uh, you don't have to be old Peter. Uh, we refer to Peter as old Peter and then young Peter because we have two Peters, old Peter and young Peter. Old Peter's 25 or something. Um, but you don't have to be Peter um, with his um, zeal um, for open-air evangelism. You don't have to be Kevin Cooney. You don't have to be Mike Moultrie. You don't have to stand in a pulpit and preach to 100 people. You don't have to stand on a street corner. You don't have to move to the other side of the world. It would be great if some of us would, but you do have to make disciples. That's just part of the command. You do have to bring others to Jesus. And as a church, that's all evangelism is. And that is something that we are all called to do. And I've, you know, I've confessed many times that we all struggle with this, and I'm the chief of sinners in this area. But if a disciple of Jesus is a learner of Jesus, and a disciple of Jesus is one who brings other to Jesus, well... Then I'm going to take a minute as an aside to strongly encourage you with a hint of guilt-trippy emotional manipulation to encourage you to start coming to Sunday school. We're about done. We're going to take a break from Matthew before we take a pause. We need to figure, I'm not going to give you a date yet because we need to figure out our schedule. Uh, but either the 14th or the 21st, we're going to start a topical series on evangelism Sunday mornings at 10. Um, if it's on Valentine's Day, happy Valentine's Day. Right? Love people by introducing them to the God who is love. But listen, church, disciples are learners of Jesus. You just cannot really call yourself a learner of Jesus if you give Jesus an hour of your week. It just doesn't work. Right? The one hour that you give uh, to church cannot compete with the over 100 hours a week we give to the world. Church, I'm just going to encourage you as your pastor, because I love you, uh, come to Sunday school. Um, we're here with some pretty good stuff, I believe. And if disciples are also those who bring others to Jesus, well, then let's come and learn together how more specifically and practically to do that. That's what we're going to talk about uh, for a while. We've been talking about it a lot. Here's the Great Commission. Here's what we're called to do. All right, how do you do it? And how do we communicate Jesus to others? We're going to specifically tackle that question for a number of weeks coming up here starting in February. So church, I encourage you. I'll get Mike to do it. He's more intimidating than I am. Um, he's bolder than I am. I'll get Mike uh, to grab your ear and encourage you to come to Sunday school. Because Christians, you are called and commanded to do this, do this by the Christ that you claim to follow. Uh, so come and learn with us. Disciples bring others to Jesus. Why? Because they love Jesus, 
Because they delight in the forgiveness and the life and the freedom that they have found in Jesus. Because they have tasted and seen that he is good. They have seen his beauty and his glory. They have experienced his grace and his mercy. And so they want others also to know and love the one that they most know and love. Church, who are you bringing to Jesus? Point number three. Listen, it'll be shorter. Do number one and two. Follow Jesus, bring others to Jesus, and for here's, here's the foundation. Here's the fuel, here's the grace. For you have been called, claimed, and named by Jesus. Look at verse 42. This should get a whole sermon. He, Andrew, brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, a son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And there's a lot going on there that will get unpacked and fleshed out as we continue on in this book. But for now, all I want you to see is that disciples of Christ, before they follow, before they bring others, are first called by Christ. Jesus will specifically tell them and us this in chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We read of the call of Peter elsewhere in the synoptic gospels like Mark 1, 17, where he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He calls them, but that actually comes after this. This is, this is first. This is the first encounter of Peter with Jesus. And it was a transformative, life-changing, world-changing encounter. Jesus calls those who are his. Church, this is how grace works. He works, he saves, not us. He initiates, not us. We've been talking a lot. We've got to get this order right. Regeneration precedes faith. His call comes before our response. New birth comes before faith. Jesus saves sinners. It's that simple. That's, That's the gospel. If you are here this morning and you have become aware or are becoming aware that you may not be a disciple of Jesus, that now you're not really following Jesus. No, you have no interest in bringing others to Jesus. Maybe you're growing in your awareness that you may still be dead in your trespasses and sins on your way to hell. Then you need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves sinners, who saves sinners by taking the place of sinners, who lived for sinners and who died for sinners and then who rose again so that we could be reconciled and restored to relationship with God. Have you been born again? We're going to look at this in great detail in chapter 3. Have you repented of your sin and believed in the Savior? It is, it is grace that makes disciples. The following and the bringing of others is our joyful and thankful response to his call. So he calls those who are his. And we see that explicitly in many places in scripture. But here I want to draw your attention to the fact that he calls Simon Cephas. It's a different kind of call here. He, Peter is called and Peter is named. In giving Peter a new name, he gives him new life and he gives him new purpose. And this is just kind of a little example of what Jesus does for all of us. He calls us, and in so doing, he names us. We were his enemies, he calls us friends. We were rebels, he calls us sons and daughters. We've seen this a lot in the book of Revelation. For example, in chapter 3, verse 12, the promise, the reward to the church in Philadelphia. I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Jesus names us. 
We talked about baptism last week. You can think about, think about baptism. Think about Matthew 28. Think of baptism as a naming ceremony. Jesus says that the disciples are to be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? What a beautiful picture there of, of the union with Christ. We are in Him now. We are covered with Christ. We are named by and in God Himself. He names us. And in naming Peter, he is making Peter new. And I think he is revealing to Peter his identity and his role. We don't have time for this. We read it in Matthew in the scripture reading. Peter is going to be the rock. And Jesus is going to say, Peter, you on this rock, on this confession of the identity of Christ, his preaching of the gospel, Peter is going to be chosen and inspired by God to speak and reveal God's word. And we see then that that word is, is going to be the, the foundation upon which the church and upon which Christians are built. And so uh, Jesus is indicating to something to Peter about his identity and about his, his role in naming him the rock. Well, in the same way, 1 Peter 2.9, we are named a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There's the name. Here's that. Here comes the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus names us. And in naming us, he is claiming us. Right? We make fun of the prosperity gospel. There is no naming and claiming. Well, there is here. Right? When God names us, he claims us. Right? The right to name is a sign of authority. I get to name my daughters, not you. They are mine by the grace of God. And so I will love them and I will lead them. In the same way, in naming us, we are his. We heard it earlier. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. And so he will love us and he will lead us. And he leads us in part to lead others to him. To, 1 Peter 2.9, proclaim his excellencies by following him, by learning from him, by abiding in him, and by bringing others to him. Church, this is what disciples are. Uh, this is what disciples do. So church, start with the end. Start here with verse uh, 42 and these gracious and glorious indicatives. Right? Don't just feel all guilty and bad and say, well, I'm going to move to Indonesia. Um, right? It's, 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 it's not going to work. Uh, it's not going to work. It starts with these gracious and glorious indicatives. We behold the Lamb. We see who He is. We see what He is doing. Um, we see the great privilege that it is to be His and the great privilege that it is uh, to come alongside and to serve Him and to follow Him. He's the one who calls us. He names us and He claims us. Do you delight in your grace-given identity in Christ? It starts there. And then from that, it comes with this ever-growing and increasing desire and discipline to follow Him and then to bring others to him. This is what we are to be seeking, church. Uh, we are to be seeking Jesus himself. We've talked a lot about in this last year how everything seems to be get so confused in many churches about what the church is going to be about. Uh, we're going to be extra clear about what the church is to be about. The church is to be about the glory of God through the making of disciples. And so that's what we are going to do, church. That requires us to first be disciples who love our Savior, who follow him, and then who live for the purpose of glorifying him, in large part by loving each other and then by bringing others to Jesus. That's what we're going to be about. 
uh, this year. We're going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We're going to look and live, and then we're going to follow and bring others. Church, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Bow with me, and let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, your word is infinitely rich and infinitely good. Father, I pray that your words uh, would increase and my words would decrease. Father, I pray that it would be your word that we leave here um, thinking of and meditating on, your words on our hearts and our minds. Father, we ask now that your spirit would take these words and, and work in us. Father, make us disciples. Father, make us disciples who long to live for you. Father, as you um, showed the Coonies very clearly years ago, how much they struggled uh, to live sacrificially for you. Father, I pray that you would be showing that for me, to me and to my family and and to all of us here. Father, as we seek to desire to honor and, and to serve you with our entire lives. Father, not just with our Sunday mornings. Father, but with our whole lives. Help us to understand that they are yours and that we are your stewards, and that we are called and privileged to to leverage our lives, um, to to love you and to honor you and to follow you, Lord, um, by being a part of your people and and loving your people. Father, by increasingly um, bringing others to Jesus. Father, forgive us for our apathy in this area. Forgive us for our fear. Uh, Forgive us for our hesitancy um, to speak. Father, I pray that you would make us bold witnesses, as we've seen the example of John, as we see now the example of, of Andrew, and as we've seen so many other examples of witnesses to Jesus. We pray that you would use this study in John. We pray that you would use the upcoming study um, in, on evangelism uh, to shape us and to mold us um, into witnesses that, that love uh, to bring other people to Jesus. Father, please save sinners um, through the ministry of Woodside Community Church, corporately and, and individually. Father, I can plead and conjole and guilt and I can do all these things as much as I want. But Father, apart from you and apart from the Spirit, um, nothing will happen. So Father, please now work in my heart and work in the heart of everyone who is in here today. Um, Father, help us to see and love Jesus Christ. Help us to follow and live for him. And we ask this only in his name. Amen.